0: Amen. Thank you for your generosity, and thank you for the beautiful music to enable our generosity. Down from his glory, and all God's fullness dwelleth in him. That song said, and thank you for playing that. It's great to see you all this morning. Welcome to those who are in the chapel, those who are online. And uh, we are excited that you're with us today at East Lake Community Church. And if anyone is here and wants to get baptized, the water's still warm. I've got a change of clothes, we can do it, I'm not joking, we want, we're, gonna, we're, uh, we're going to continue to uh, see people come to Christ and we'll uh, be baptizing folks here in the next few weeks, so please let us know if you haven't obeyed the Lord in that, we'd love to, we'd love to celebrate that with you. I uh, had an interesting moment in the uh, first service this morning, uh, two of our candidates for sheriff were here at the same service. So uh, Kent Roby and Mike Miller were here at 8 o'clock, so I did what you're supposed to do. I brought them both up on the platform and prayed for both of them at the same time, and uh, trying to do what I can to bring unity and harmony in this world. Uh, So uh, I met with David Wells on uh, Friday, and so I've gotten to know all three of the, the guys that are running in the... Republican primary on Tuesday. I encourage you to vote. Yeah. <laughs> How about that? You were waiting on something, weren't you? Uh, so you know what? Bedford County is a great place, and and we got some great folks running. And there's one other gentleman I haven't met, but I, I hear he is a tremendous guy as well. So you know, I believe I, I love what John Wesley said about elections, and I you've heard me say this before, but it's worth repeating every time we roll around like this, and that is vote without fee or reward for the person you judge most worthy. Isn't that good advice? Secondly, speak no evil of the person you vote against. Oh, John Wesley didn't have Facebook, though. (laughs) Amen. And take care of your spirit so it's not sharpened against those that voted on the other side. And listen, we are Christians before we are Republicans or before we are Democrats or before we're for Johnny Joe or Susie May. We are Christians and we follow Jesus as our highest allegiance. Amen? Amen. And we have, we have a real danger in the church world for, for this kind of stuff to create disunity in our Christian walk. And uh, by the grace of God, it doesn't do that. I thank God for this church. And I watched you guys over the last two weeks be the hands and feet of Jesus in three different services for families who had to say goodbye to loved ones. And uh, I just want to thank you for making me uh, just stand back with a sense of pride and awe of how, how devoted and how faithful you are to serving people. Uh, one individual I barely knew. Uh, been here just a few months, but their family was telling me, your church has done this, and the ladies have done that, and people have cared for us and prayed for us, and, and so thank you for being the church. Uh, this is truly the greatest church in the planet, I and mean, since we're on the internet, nobody knows but us, but anyways, uh, I mean that. It's great to be a part of this church. We've been talking for uh, several weeks now about the fact that we as Christians are on a journey, And being a Christian isn't a static event that happened one time 20 years ago, and then you just sort of stay there. You punch your ticket for heaven, wait till the rapture, and then we all go get to see what's really cool up in heaven. No, being a Christian is a relationship with Jesus that moves you from one spot to the next in this life because God wants to take us somewhere in this life. We're using, uh, over the past several weeks, we've kind of covered this territory. If You'll, you'll see these on the, as a re, uh, review on the screen. We, we started a several weeks ago by talking about the fact that we are on a journey like the children of Israel. 1 Corinthians 10, the Apostle Paul took their journey from, from Egypt to Canaan. If you'll go to that next slide, please. Uh, Egypt to Canaan, where he said, all of this happened to them as an example to us. The next slide, I'm sorry. All of this happened to them as an example for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. So we've kind of used their journey as an illustration for us. Then we've been walking through the book of Romans and really seeing the Christian journey in that respect. Uh, we begin, uh, as, as uh, we said a few weeks ago in Romans chapter 1 verse through 3, we all begin in sin. Paul makes three, two and a half chapters a pretty strong case, a very strong case to say there is none righteous, no not one, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God and he lays it down, the devastating effects of sin, the universal effect of sin and we looked at that a few weeks ago. So we all start in the same place. You could call that the land of Egypt, a land of slavery. I got good news for you this morning. If your address is still Egypt, God is still parting the Red Sea and bringing people out of sin. Amen? So we looked two weeks ago at the reality that we get out of sin by being justified by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. In Romans chapter 3, verse 21, through chapter 5, verse 21, we, we saw that the only way to get out of sin is not to try to modify your behavior, try to stop sinning. Less or start sinning less, but but the only way out of sin is that the miraculous, powerful work of God through Jesus Christ, if you'll put your faith in Jesus Christ, the waters will part and God will deliver you out of the land of Egypt. Amen. Doesn't it feel good to wake up and realize I'm out of the place of condemnation, slavery, bondage? idol worship, misery, fear. I am now, I have been delivered. I have the peace of God, the promise of God leading my life. That is a glorious place to be. The children of Israel woke up on the east side of the Red Sea and they danced and sang and worshiped. You can read about it in Exodus chapter 15. They had a celebration. It was amazing. And then they stopped celebrating and looked around and said where are we are we home yet and Moses said welcome to the desert last week we looked at that reality that when we wake up in the desert after getting saved we have to learn lessons on what it means to walk by faith with God there are preparatory uh, lessons for the promised land and there are mandatory lessons for fruitfulness and maturity In Exodus chapter 13 through 18, we looked at last week, we realized that we are not made for the desert, but God has crafted a desert just for us. Because God wants to prepare us as Christians now so that he can prepare us for the place that he wants us ultimately to go. And I'm not talking about heaven. I'm talking about in this life, the land of Canaan in this life, a land of fruitfulness and effectiveness and maturity. This is where God wants all of us to go. We're on this L365 journey from March this year till March of next year when we move down the road. And the purpose of that is to raise up 365 holy, unified, and engaged men and women, young people and children who are totally sold out to Jesus Filled with the Spirit so we can be used of God to impact this world like never before for the glory of the gospel. So we're on this journey. We walked through uh, Exodus last week with the children of Israel. This morning, I want to uh, take us and show us this morning our biggest enemy on the way to the promised land. The biggest enemy on the way to the promised land is the flesh. Don't look at me like you don't know what I'm talking about. You know exactly what I'm talking about. Amen. Everybody say the flesh. The Apostle Paul spends five chapters talking about sin and salvation and how to get saved. He transitions in chapter 6 of Romans and he begins to talk about sanctification. Sanctification salvation is the work of god justifying us bringing us out of sin making us right with god he imputes to us christ's righteousness christ takes our sin it takes all of our punishment we are clothed in the righteousness of christ we're justified by faith in christ we are made right with god we have peace with god hallelujah and then the lord says we're not home yet children And he begins to work the work of sanctification in our life. Sanctification, if justification is positional righteousness, sanctification is the work of practical righteousness in our life. In the course of uh, uh, Romans chapter 6, 7, and 8, I want to read a few verses, and then I want to talk about this, our greatest enemy, for a few minutes this morning. Romans chapter 7 and verse verse 4 begins and reads like this. Likewise, my brothers... You also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another. He's using marriage as an illustration prior to this. And he says we were married to the law. And he makes the point that just like in a marriage, the only way out of a marriage, according to the Old Testament law, was it was till death do us part and the only way one of the spouses had to die. And just so you know, as a side note, don't take Romans 7, 1 through 3 as the totality of the teaching on divorce in the Bible, because it's just a little illustration that Paul uses to make this point. He says, we were in a marriage relationship with the law up until now, but we have died through Christ, therefore that marriage is no longer, and we've been married to somebody else. We've been married to Jesus. We've been married to the resurrected Christ. Uh, So that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. I want you to jump with me down to verse 14. Verse 14. And I want you to look with me at one of the most intriguing paragraphs in the New Testament. And we're going to hopefully uh, swim through the shark waters of Romans chapter 7 here for a few minutes. This is the Apostle Paul, the greatest theologian outside of Jesus, the greatest missionary in the Christian church history. I want you to listen to. I want you to imagine that you're on a Wednesday night church service and the pastor asks for testimonies. And the Apostle Paul stands up and starts testifying, all right? Listen to him testify. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. Boy, that'd make everybody look around at the Apostle Paul, wouldn't it? For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Got awful quiet when Paul was testifying there, didn't he? You want to know why? Because nobody wants to say amen, but we all can say amen. We're going to talk about that in a moment. Hang with me. I'm freaking some of you theologians out completely. You don't know what I'm going to say about this. I have the desire to do right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being... But I see in my members, my outer being, another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from, the, from this body of death? This would be a terrible time for the fire alarm to go off and all of us run out. Amen. <laughs> Verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, so then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Let me give you a little bit of theological advice and Bible reading advice. Don't do helicopter exegesis. And what that means is don't fly your little helicopter over all other scriptures. Land on one little spot. Grab something and fly right straight back up and fly off without looking around it. Because if you just read what I just read, you might take that and apply it to your life to say, this is the life of the Christian. I am wretched and vile and sinful, and it's the best I can do before I get to heaven. But you got to keep reading. Let's keep reading Romans chapter 8. There is therefore now... No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. That sounds a little different than, oh, wretched man that I am, doesn't it? For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. So that's a lot of theology in Romans chapter 6, 7, and 8. Let me try to condense it to these three realities. There are three things that every Christian who comes out of Egypt, delivered by Christ out of sin, and who's been born again and given eternal life, there's three things every Christian needs to know from from this passage of Scripture. And here they are. Number one, the goal of our Christian life is to be fruitful in righteousness to the glory of God. Why? Why? Did the Lord save me? Well, he saved me to make my life easier, and I get the little promise book, and every day I pull out a promise, and it's magical how it just matches up with the car that's on empty that day. That was kind of funny, but you guys aren't with me here this morning. (laughs) The Lord saved me, so now I got me a little helper along the way, and God can just come along and help. No, no, the purpose of the Lord saving you and me is that he would redeem us from sin and begin cleaning and molding and shaping and changing us. The reason he justified us is because he loves us and he wants to be near us, and once he justifies us, then he begins to work in our life because he wants our life, our attitude, our behavior to reflect his character and nature to the world and we all know that instinctively we know that instinctively as a matter of fact every one of us here somewhere in our life and says that person isn't acting like a christian well why would we say that person is not acting like a christian because we know instinctively that a person who is united with christ and has been experienced salvation that our life ought to then begin to reflect the character and the nature of jesus christ And so for five chapters, Romans 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, he describes our sin and how we get out of sin. And that's through justification by faith. We put our faith in Christ, and the Lord says, all right, you're justified. And in that moment, we are more holy than we've ever been before in our entire life. The sin that we've committed has been cast from us into the sea of God's forgetfulness. God gives us Christ's righteousness. Christ takes our sin, and we are in that moment made holy, more holy than we've ever been in our entire life. And then he gets to chapter 6. And in chapter 6, he says, Now I want to begin the the work of God, the purpose of the work of God in your life is to begin to work in your life so that you will begin not only just embracing the position of being holy in Christ, but you will become practically living out the righteousness of God through the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. The goal For every Christian is to be fruitful in righteousness. Romans chapter 7 and verse 4 says, You have died to the law through the body of Christ, and you now belong to another. Listen, that we may bear fruit for God. The Apostle Paul has transitioned now. In those first few chapters, he established that salvation is a work of grace. God does something miraculous for those of us who are sinful in making us right with him in spite of our unworthiness. And all those who place their faith in Christ are justified. And at the conclusion of chapter 5, he makes this wonderful statement that says where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Where there was sin, there was a whole lot more grace. Somebody say amen. Amen. And then he says, and I'm getting into Paul's mind, he says, you know, I probably better add this real quick. What shall we say then? Shall we then continue on sinning so that grace may continue to abound in equal proportion to sin? And he says, no, 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 God forbid. And then he spends chapter 6 talking about our relationship to our past sins. Don't you know that you have died to sin? And then he talks about our relationship to present sin. Now I want you to reckon yourselves now to be dead indeed unto sin and alive unto God and holiness. And he's talking about this matter of sanctification, moving our righteousness from a positional place in heaven to a practical place in our life every day. Did you know that God wants your attitude, your behavior, and your lifestyle to reflect the character of Jesus every day? The problem with that The problem, and I'll get to the the main problem in a moment, the problem that Paul is really wrestling with here is he said all our life we've been married to a slave driver because here was the role of the law. The law was just a harsh slave driver. The the, the law, anybody ever been around somebody that just points out all your negatives? Don't, Don't elbow your spouse. That would be a bad time for that. You know, it's like, You do something, well, you shouldn't have done it that way. Well, why don't you tell me how to do it? No, you shouldn't have done it that way. And all they do is point out everything you do wrong. Somebody's thinking about your boss right now, aren't you, Chris? I hope your boss don't go to church here. You're laughing. (laughs) Somebody. And this is what the apostle Paul said. The apostle Paul said we were married to the law. The law was a slave driver. All the law did was say don't steal, don't cheat, don't commit adultery, don't no, no, don't lie, don't, have any, don't bear false witness. And we would say, okay, and, but I did it anyway. And this is what the law said when we said we did it. The law said, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. Okay, but I, I, I did it. And the law said, don't commit adultery. Uh, don't cheat, don't lie, don't, don't have any gut. And all the law did was turn the spotlight on all the things that we did wrong. And Paul said, I was alive once in chapter 7. I was alive once before the law. But when the law came, sin revived and I died. He said, I didn't know what was right and wrong when I was a little kid. And when I learned the law, all of a sudden I was under condemnation because I realized that, oh man, I'm doing all this stuff. But the law offered no way out. And this is what Paul is describing. And he's saying, God's plan for us, listen, Is that our life be fruitful in the area of righteousness. And he gave us the law to show us the standard of what is right and wrong. But the law was totally weak in helping us live up to that standard. Are you with me? The law had a role. And Paul actually says five or six very positive things about it in this chapter. But the law's role was never to enable us to reach the goal that God created us for. There's not a person here this morning that hasn't wrestled with this reality. I know what is right, but I don't have any power to attain to that level of righteousness. And this is Paul describing our relationship to the law. Matthew Henry states this about the law's role. He says, the law, by commanding, forbidding, threatening, corrupt, and fallen man, but offering no grace to cure and strengthen, did but stir up the corruption, and like the sun shining upon a dunghill, excite and draw up the filthy steams. We, being lamed by the fall, the law comes and directs us, but provides nothing to heal and help our lameness. And so it makes us halt and stumble the more. And this is the Apostle Paul describing, here, here's the dilemma. The goal for our life is that we would bring, and it's in chapter 6, that we would produce righteousness that leads to eternal life. But we have this gap because all we have is the law. We've been married to the law. And then he gives us a second, even greater problem that I've really set, set out to dis to show you this morning, and that is that the problem in our Christian life is the flesh is a rival to righteousness. The problem in the Christian life is the flesh is a rival to righteousness. Paul's second illustration, the first being marriage, but his second illustration is his own life's experience. He was fully aware of the law and the requirements of God, and he had a heart that wanted to do the law that he had learned as a child and as a student of it. Yet he discovered that he was completely incapable of fulfilling it. It drove him to a point of absolute misery. He declared, oh, wretched man that I am. Chapter 7, verses 14 through 25 are some of the most interesting verses in all of the New Testament. As I said earlier, do not helicopter in, grab a few of these and make them your life verses. But Paul is describing a person himself who is in this titanic struggle of wanting to do what is right, but finding there's no power in his own life to do what is right. I don't have to ask, it would be inappropriate for me to ask, but if I did ask, we could all agree we've all been there. Our heart longs to do what is right, but somehow, even though we say we're gonna do better and we declare we're gonna do better and we long to do better, we find ourselves doing the same thing again. This is the dilemma that Paul is picturing. The fundamental question of Romans chapter 7 is who is this person? Is Romans chapter 7 describing the Christian missionary theologian at that moment? who is now wrestling as a christian missionary and theologian who is wrestling with the reality that i want to do the right thing but all i do is the wrong thing over and over again and i find that i'm at war and losing the battle most of the time is that paul's present condition was this paul's condition sometime earlier in his life is this describing the the life of the ordinary christian in 2019 is this, and I've heard it used, I've heard it used, and, 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 and it's there. It sounds pretty straightforward. You know, the things that I want to do, I don't do. The things that I shouldn't do, I end up doing. I find that on the outside, I'm doing this, but on the inside, I really want to do that. Oh, wretched man that I am. And what has happened is we have driven on this journey through the book of Romans as American Christianity. And we have stopped our RV at a KOA spot in in Romans chapter 7. And we have hooked up for the long haul. Can I tell you this morning, we need to unhook our RV and keep right on traveling. Amen. We need to keep traveling. Romans chapter 7 is not our destination. It is a reality. Let me give you what I think are, uh, is the best, my best and most honest understanding. As different theological persuasions interpret these passions more or one way or the other to strengthen their theological conclusions, here is my best and most honest understanding of what's going on when Paul says, "I'm a wretched man. I'm trying to do right. I'm doing wrong. I'm trying to do. I stop, try to stop doing wrong, and I can't. And, and, and I'm, I've got this war going on in my mind, in my body, in my heart." Here's my best and most honest understanding: first, that Paul is describing is most likely his own life as a Pharisee trying to find salvation and holiness by keeping the law. So Paul was different than most all of us here. There's probably somebody that could identify with him, but most of us were not like Paul. Let me give you that, just give you to you very simply. Paul was a super, hyper, well-trained religious man before he ever came to Christ. He had a master's degree in the Old Testament law. He loved the law. He studied the law. He enforced the Old Testament law. He taught the law. He was zealous for the law. He wanted to be right with God as he knew it. And all he had was the Old Testament law. As a matter of fact, when Jesus sprang up and all the people of Jesus' day and the followers of Jesus, you know the story, Paul went after and started persecuting the followers of Jesus, thinking he was doing the will of God. Why? Because he loved the law. He describes himself in Philippians chapter 3 verse 5. This is what he says in the New Living Translation. I was circumcised when I was eight days old. That's a Jewish thing. He's giving his Jewish pedigree. I am a pure-blooded citizen of Israel. I'm a member of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a real Hebrew, if there ever was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demand the strict obedience to the Jewish law. This was him before he became a Christian. He's a little bit weird, but that was him. You say, what do you mean weird? I mean, he was studying theology, going to Bible studies, getting master's degree in divinity before he ever knew Christ. I don't know many people that do that. But the apostle Paul was zealous he wanted he wanted to do the Old Testament law. He loved the Old Testament law, and when Jesus came along, and people who followed Jesus started sort of rebuking the law a little bit, Paul went and he, he beat him up. Man, he had him arrested. He watched one guy get killed, murdered for his faith in Christ, and Paul stood there and held the coats of the men who killed him. Why? Because he loved the Old Testament law. And I think Paul is telling us in Romans chapter 7 about his own personal journey as a man who loved the law, trying to fulfill the law in his own strength and flesh. It's absolutely certain, you cannot make any argument whatsoever that Paul is talking about himself at this moment because Romans 6 and Romans 8 totally contradict Romans 7, if that's the case. Paul is describing what it's like to be a person who wants to do what's right but is trying to do it in your own strength. But I think there's something else that's more relevant to you and I this morning. And I believe that secondly, Paul is, this paragraph, is an accurate description of the life of the believer who discovers that there's an internal struggle between pleasing the Lord and pleasing the flesh. And this is where we could all Not tell Paul's story. We could tell our own. After we genuinely got converted to Jesus, in our life, we found ourselves in a place where we knew we loved the Lord. And we knew we were right with the Lord. We knew that our faith was in Jesus Christ. And then we found ourselves with an internal struggle that was pulling us against the will of God. And that's the reality That is the reality of where we go from the point of conversion when we walk with God. We will come to a place where there's this internal struggle where we're wrestling with the flesh and the spirit. Am I going to do the will of God or am I going to do my will? The children of Israel discovered when they got out of Egypt that the armies of Egypt were no longer threatening them. It was themselves. They themselves were threatening each other. They were fighting. They were feuding. They were building golden calves. They were disobeying God. It wasn't that the armies of Egypt had caught up to them and were taking them back to Egypt. It wasn't that Egypt was, was chasing them. When they got out in the desert, they found out there was something in their heart that was chasing Egypt. They wanted they wanted to go back. And this is, this is the reality after conversion, there is a battle in the life of a Christian that says, who will, ultimately, who will I ultimately aim to please? Will I aim to please the Lord or myself? Who will ultimately be in control of my life? And what ultimately will my life produce, sin or righteousness? The flesh not only does not help us with the requirements of the law, but soon the flesh rises up as a rival against the Spirit of, the, uh, uh, spirit of God and the law. The danger for us, here's the danger. The danger is that we either cheapen our salvation to the point of accepting inferior Christian living, or we fall into despair, like Paul did, by reflecting on our own inability to live up to the standard of God. Those are the extremes. We say, you know what? Good gravy. Romans chapter 7, Paul said he couldn't do anything right. I can't do anything right either. So I had a little affair with my wife. It's not a big deal. I I, I didn't want to, but I did it. So be it. I'm not perfect. Praise God. We can adopt that. Or we can just go to the point where we drive ourselves into despair by saying, I'm not, living up to the, I'm not living up to the requirements of God. Oh, wretched man that I am. We just live in despair. And I've seen people live in utter despair over putting the guilt upon themselves to try to make themselves behave to God's perfect standard. This is, this, this is the conundrum that we find ourselves in. Can I say that the awesome truth of Paul's teaching in these chapters provides a third and glorious option. Let me give you the the third thing you need to know. You need to know. If you've you've been saved, you need to know that the goal is to be fruitful in righteousness, that your flesh is a rival to righteousness, and thirdly, you need to know that the gospel in the Christian life produces freedom when we relinquish control to the Holy Spirit of God in our life. Chapter 8 of Romans is the description of the power of the gospel that releases us from the dread of chapter 7 by trying to fulfill all those requirements in our own strength. You may or may not know, but today is Pentecost Sunday. Pentecost Sunday is the day when the church was born. It's funny that Christmas gets a season, Easter gets a day, and Pentecost may get an hour if we're lucky. This is the birthday of the church when the Holy Spirit was poured out upon the people of God. 16 times in Romans chapter 8, Paul is now in full crescendo, rejoicing in the reality that he's not stuck in Romans chapter 7, but that he has made it through the wilderness of wrestling in a defeated way with the flesh. And he has found victory and liberty And freedom by surrendering his life to the power and the work of the Holy Spirit. And as he concluded in chapter 7, Oh wretched man that I am, who can deliver me? He starts chapter 8, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. That That doesn't sound like the same dude to me. That sounds like a totally different person who has found freedom by yielding themselves to the power of the Holy Spirit. And throughout chapter 8, he over and over and over again reminds us of the power of walking in the Spirit. He said, we do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And we set our mind on the things of the Spirit. And if you are born of God, you have the Spirit. And so then if, if, if uh, you will die, but if we by the Spirit will put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For we are led by the Spirit of God if we are children of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption where you cry out, Abba, Father. And the spirit bears witness with your spirit that you are a child of God. And there is no condemnation. Hallelujah to those who are in Christ Jesus who walk after the spirit. The solution to wrestling in the flesh is yielding to the spirit the solution to wrestling. Oh, the things, I'm going to do better. I'm not going to do that this week. Oh, stop trying. You can't part the Red Sea. You can't part the Red Sea, and you can't fill yourself with enough power to stop misbehaving. You need to fall on the mercy of God in Christ Jesus. Put your faith in Him, and allow the Holy Spirit to have full control of your life. When a person gets saved, they have all of the Holy Spirit they're ever going to get. I want you to hear me here. The Scripture says in Romans 8, if you do not have the Spirit of God, you are not any of His. So when you get saved, God puts the Holy Spirit within you. The battle then becomes, as Paul describes in Romans chapter 7, the wrestling, the Spirit is there, and the flesh is there. And it's a who's going to be in charge deal. It's who's going to be in charge. It's much like you coming to my house. And I say, won't you just make yourself at home? Wiley comes into my house. He didn't, but if he came into my house, Wiley, make yourself at home. And he goes down the hall, takes a big old hammer, and he starts taking out a wall. I'm like, whoa, bro. What, are we knocking a hole in the wall? He said, I think this wall needs to move. Then he goes in there and opens up my, my drawer drawer. I'm like, dude, get out of my drawer drawer. What are you in my drawer drawer for? You see, a lot of Christians tell the Lord, make yourself at home. And the Lord begins to act like an owner. And we say, get your hands off. Amen. And the Lord says, I think we need to rearrange some of this stuff in this house. I think actually we need to have a bonfire. I think we need to burn some junk in this house. I, need to, I think we need to clean some, out, some stuff out of your drawers. And we say, no, wait a minute, Lord. You're welcome to be here. But would you just mind? Hold on here. You understand the difference? And as long as we want to hold on to control, there's going to be that war that wrestles within us. We're always going to have battles. I'm not saying that you're ever going to get to a place where you don't have temptations. You don't have f- mistakes and failures. I, I, you're never going to. But I want to tell you something. You can get to a place where you write a big yes across your heart that says, whatever God wants in my life, the answer is yes, predetermined, before he ever asks. I'm not going to, ask, I'm not going to wait and wrestle with it when he asks me. My answer is yes, Lord, before you ever ask. Amen. Romans 8 describes the freedom in walking in obedience. Here's what he says We have no condemnation, we have no reservation, and we have no separation. There's no condemnation. We are free from fear. Paul transitions from, Oh wretched man that I am, to, There is therefore now no condemnation. There's no reservation. We are free from walking in the flesh because we have told totally, unreservedly given ourselves to the leadership of the Holy Spirit. We have set our mind on the the Spirit. And there is no separation because Paul says in the last few verses of Romans chapter 8, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors. Listen, listen, listen listen we're on a journey right we get out of Egypt praise God I'm saved and now the Lord says I want to teach you how to walk with the spirit that's, that's what this is about. one of these days I'll bring my jolly green giant sermon back I promise I know this is deep stuff I know this is heavy stuff But, folks, listen, I am so blessed to be your pastor, and I'm so blessed to walk this with you, and I want to live this and know this and experience this, and I want you to experience it with me because I want to be a church that is led by the Spirit of God. Amen. Too many of us have parked our campers in Romans chapter 7. Fire that dude up. Let's get out of here and get on to Romans chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation. Amen. Would you stand with me this morning and bow your heads? Oh, Jesus, we need your help this morning. Oh, Lord, we need your help this morning. We trust in you this morning. How many of you this morning would just say, Pastor Troy, I want to live. I want to live under the Spirit-controlled life. And the Lord is speaking to me, even in this service, about some things. And you just want to say, by raising your hand, I'm praying right now, Pastor Troy, that I'll be led of the Spirit. Just raise your hand. God bless you. Many, many hands. Oh, God bless you. Lord, we just pray. Oh, Lord, we pray that you would hear our humble cry hear our humble cry in this moment. Oh God, I pray. Oh God, I pray that you would bring us bring us to a place of yieldedness to the Holy Spirit like we've never known before. And we know that as we yield to the Holy Spirit, we experience the power of the Holy Spirit. So we trust in you now, Lord. I think about all these And myself, who've raised their hands this morning to say, Lord, we want to live in the power and the anointing of the Holy Spirit of God. And Lord, we know that's your goal for us. We know the battle that we have. But we also know there's victory. There is victory in Christ. There's victory as we yield to the Holy Spirit. Lord, somebody, maybe even this week, lost the battle of the flesh. Would you just ask to help them now as they ask you to forgive them, to cleanse them, Lord? And show them how the Holy Spirit can work with them this coming week. And guide them in a new way. Lord, I pray your your spirit would be poured out upon us afresh and anew. Lord, in our lives that we would be yielded like never before. And I pray your grace upon us today in Jesus' name. Amen.